I want to start off with a story here, maybe, hopefully, to help you attach your own story, your own life, as a silly story. So it's back in high school, so maybe think about a time back in your high school experience. And back in high school, there were a few food fights. Has anybody been a part of a food fight before? Just show of hands here. Okay. Oh, come on. There's got to be more than that. More audience participation here. It's not too hard. Okay. So watch this. Just say this out loud, the answer to this question. What's your favorite color? Just say it. One, three. One, two, three. Okay. So audience participation. That's good. God loves you. He died for you. He raised from the grave. What's your response to that? What do you say on three? One, two, three. Probably a lot of different responses. That was sweet. <laughs> it, it, the, it wasn't the wrong one. Don't worry. So again, like, has anybody been part of a food fight? Or maybe you were the one that threw the food yourself. I was part of a food fight. Now, I could tell you a lot of stories of how I messed up big time in high school. I'm not going to share those because my mom's upstairs right there watching me. So I'm not going to go in that direction, which, by the way, thank you for the prayers. She is stable right now. Uh, Cancer results came in this last week. So that's good. Keep praying. That's sweet. But she's up there. So I'm not going to go in that direction. What I'm going to say is when I did something right, but I still had a negative consequence. Have you guys ever been there? Like you did the right thing and then you still got in trouble. Okay, so there's this food fight. And seriously, food flying everywhere. Robert, it was right there in the cafeteria where you eat every single day. And I wasn't going to throw my food. And I had my mom to back me up on this. I used to make the best lunches. And I would get up extra early. I would have all the good ingredients because she would buy, me, buy them for me. She loves me. And, and then I would make the sandwich. There's no way I'm going to take this and, and chuck this across at someone's face. Why would I do that? That's such a waste of a good sandwich. And so um, what me and my buddies did, we decided to instead take a table and throw it up and kind of just hide behind it and continue to eat our food. We didn't, we didn't engage in this food fight. I'm not going to say if I ever engaged in another food fight or anything like that, but this one for sure I didn't. And then after the food fight, you know, it, it stopped. The administration walked in and they calmed everybody down. The principal called us over and said, hey, uh, can you just tell us like what was going on, what you saw? We're not going to rat our buddies. So we were just like, well, we just threw the table up and kept eating. We, we didn't want to stop eating our good food. And he's like, okay, can you uh, come share that with some more people in, the, in our office? And I was like, this is weird. And so we go get up, follow him, go to his office and sit down. And then there's this lady, this mom. She goes on full rage mode. And she's pointing at me saying, I saw you throw food. And I was like, like, there's no way you saw. I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking there's just like no way you saw me throw food because I didn't like I ate my sandwich. I wouldn't throw that. And I tried to explain to her. I'm like, I make really good sandwich. And she wasn't buying that like at all. And, and she's like, no, it was him. I saw him. And of course, the principal wasn't going to take my word. Right. And so I got in trouble. It wasn't just like a a warning, like, don't do that again. It wasn't a detention. Um, It wasn't like a referral. It wasn't an in-school suspension. It was an out-of-school suspension, like immediately to the top. And I'm like, this wasn't my fault. I didn't do anything. So I, I share that story to just communicate with you guys. Like, I'm pretty sure most of us in this room have a shared experience there, that we have done the right thing. And we have still received negative consequence for that. 
This is actually what's going on in Peter's epistle. And I'm not going to take too much time to remind us of everything in Peter's epistle. I'm going to share the big idea and a little bit of the context to help us get ready for 1 Peter chapter 5. So if you haven't turned there already, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. But I want to share this big idea with you. And it's going to make more sense. Like it's not really good right there by itself. But as, as the morning goes, like you're going to, you're going to see, okay, here's why John keeps saying the same thing over and over again. And I'm going to try to say this over and over again. At just the right time, you will be exalted. You'll be lifted up. And we're going to talk about what does it mean to be exalted? And what does it mean at just the right time? What kind of language is that? So to get us there, I do want to read a couple of verses here with you guys. And uh, they come from Peter's epistle, kind of peppered throughout. So I'm trying to remind us of ideas that Peter has already taught us in this epistle. And he's coming full circle on a lot of these ideas. Full circle. And so he's attempting to land the plane on many of the ideas that he's already seeded in our mind earlier. Okay, so a few of those would be, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now these Christians being persecuted, they didn't deserve that. They didn't do anything to merit that. They were doing all the right things in serving God, and yet they still were under various trials. So Peter says, I'm going to write a letter about that to encourage you guys. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's going to circle back to this idea of what does it mean to have a sober mind and action? What's the purpose? What's the point of that? We'll circle back to that idea. And then he says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. In fact, as the emperor is going to bring about more and more and more persecution your way, honor them. You're not fighting against flesh and blood. That's not where your retaliation is. Instead, we're supposed to fear God. We're supposed to love the brotherhood and honor all people. Okay? Then he goes on. He says, when he, Christ, was reviled. Here's our example. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Jesus himself went through this same process. He came to love people. He came to heal people. He came to preach the good news to people. And what what did he get in return? Hostility from the Jewish leadership. Pharisees, Sadducees alike. And then they took it up to Rome And then he was crucified. He didn't revile in return. He just kept pouring out the love of God. That's what we're called to do. And so he continues, he says, The the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now he's going to be circling back to this idea of prayers in this final section of Peter's epistle. What does it mean to pray? What does that look like? Why am I supposed to pray? And what are the benefits of prayer? All of those ideas kind of make up the structure of the four points. So the four major points that I have in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11 are this. Our posture before God. Just think about that. What is your posture before God? That's the first major point that I want to look at with you guys. And I want you guys to be thinking along with the text, what is my posture before God? On a daily basis, what does that look like? Second point is going to be the litmus test to check that posture. 
After you recognize, okay, what is my posture? There's actually a built-in test right here in this passage that allows us to evaluate whether or not we have that right posture before God. Okay? Third point, why that specific posture is important. There's a reason God is actually telling us to do the thing that he's telling us to do in this passage. There's a reason for it. It's like, why? Why is he telling me to do this? And then the fourth point would be the benefits of that posture. When I do this, again, at just the right time, I will be exalted. Okay? You will be exalted if we do the things suggested in this passage here. So the first point that I want to look at with you guys is our posture before God. And again, maybe I'll just give you like five seconds to think about that. On a daily basis, what is your posture before God? What is your posture before God when you're going through hard things? What is your posture before God when you're experiencing blessing? I want, I want you to maybe land that plane in your mind, that the answer to that question, so you can really have something to walk away from this text at the end. What is your posture before God? Let's look at verse 6 of chapter 5, 1 Peter. It says this, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Okay, when we see this word humility, and it's kind of strange actually, it's in command form. Like, can you be commanded to be humble? Like, think about that for a second. Knowing everything that you know about this word humility, like, be humble. Okay, I get, is it like a matter of the will? Like, how do I do this, right? Like, there's, there's something that we can do in here to make sure we can check that, that we're actually doing it. But oftentimes, there's, there's this idea about humility that we have that's just not the right idea. Um, and I, I tend to um, take a lot of lessons uh, from Pastor Eeyore and, and his way of going about life, and I call this Eeyoreology. We just, if, if I can think enough bad thoughts about myself and just really beat myself up, people are going to know that God loves me and that's humility, right? Or we often um, think in terms of wormology, kind of the same thing. If I can just think of myself as the low of the low, then I'm, then I'm attaining humility. I'm attaining this virtue. And then people are going to really know that God loves me and died for me. No, like that's actually not a good thing. Those thoughts are bad thoughts. And um, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, as C.S. Lewis said. It's thinking of yourself less. There's a big difference there. And sometimes we fall in the category of Eeyore or this worm theology. We just beat ourselves up for the wrong stuff. And I think Satan has something to do with that. And he's in this passage here, so I'm going to come back to that idea in just a second. But better yet, um, I was reminded of this as I was thinking about this passage and specifically this word. And I want to spend a little bit of time talking about this word because I think it's important for us to understand exactly what Peter is saying. So to humble yourself. Like, I was reminded of this mountain because after doing this word study, this mountain came to mind. And let's say that I wanted to like carve a path out of that mountain, build a bridge to see everything, and then I wanted to carve a path through that mountain, put a road that I can walk through. You'd be like, that's crazy. But to teach this point, it makes sense. So if I were to do that, I would say I have humbled the mountain. That's the idea of humbling. I would lower it. So the Greek word is tapenao, and it simply means to cause to be at a lower place. 
And so the Greeks would use it back in the day to say, well, we need to make a road here, so we're going to get rid of this mountain, we're going to humble this mountain and just get rid of it. Um, the disciples picked up on that, specifically Jesus, and all of his own Hebrew tradition also picked up on that idea. And Jesus had something to say about lowering mountains too or moving them. He said, Jesus said, because you have so little faith, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. The idea behind the statement isn't that you can go talk to a mountain and tell it to move. That's weird. I tried that. I was doing that in Alaska. It doesn't work. Trust me. You don't have to waste your day to, do, uh, to figure that out. But what Jesus is saying here is it takes just a little bit of faith to move something out of the way. And guess what? You put a road through that mountain, there's going to be progress on that journey. And the same thing can be said of us as Christ followers. If you can humble yourself, lower yourself, there's going to be progress and process in your journey with Christ. If we don't humble ourselves, if we choose not to have humility in this process, something is not, something bad is going to happen. We see that in this text. So he says specifically, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Okay, quick, quick story, and again, show of hands. How many of you guys like deal with ants and just hate ants and can't stand ants? I've used this before at the youth group, so they might know where I'm going with this, but I'm going to add a couple of details to this one. Okay, so what usually happens is when ants come into the home, my wife, she's really, she's not here so I can say it, she's really mean to the ants. Like, you guys got to pray for her. Like, she sees them, she squishes them, she takes the Windex and she sprays them and she just gets rid of them. Me, on the other hand, I'm like, they're just cleaning up after us. Come on, like, just let them take the crumbs, right? It's no big deal. But that doesn't make a happy wife, so no happy life. So I had to get on the phone and call the exterminator, have them come on out and spray everywhere, and the ants are gone. Okay, so, but what if I did this instead? What if I said, honey, I love these ants, and you're going to have to stop killing them, because I'm going to take care of the ants, the ant problem. In fact, I'm going to become one of those ants. They're gross. Like, ants actually, the way that they communicate with each other, some of the ants, they vomit in each other's mouths and they send information somehow, some way. Right? That's just really gross. Like, ants do that. And it works. They're very efficient and very effective in doing that. And so I'm going to have to go down and become one of these ants and vomit in each other's mouth and do all that kind of stuff. It's communicate that I love them. And I'm not going to stop there. When you call that exterminator the very death that's going to destroy them, I'm going to take the full hit of that extermination and I'm going to save them. Because I love those ants. But I really don't. This is a silly example. But check this out. This is actually what God has done for us. Now, think about the difference between you and an ant. Would you ever become an ant to save an ant? Be honest with yourself. Probably not. Why would you do that? They're horrible, right? But this is what God has done for us. He has stepped down to our level. He's been humbled. He's communicated with us the way that we communicate. And he loves us. He cares for us. And it says in the book of Philippians, and being found in appearance as a man, like he really did that. God really did this. He humbled himself. He made himself lower, came under the authority of even those who were going to put him to death. Becoming obedient to death, our very, our, the, the worst problem we have, even death on a cross. 
He didn't just come and live a long life, a good life, and no, he like died, came and died a brutal death. That, that blows my mind that this is the kind of God that we serve. Blesses me at the same time. So what is it then that we're supposed to humble ourselves under? So let's keep going here. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. All right, so hand of God. The Jewish people probably had this in mind as they were thinking hand of God. Um, so the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great terror and signs and wonders. And so there's a bunch of these verses in the Old Testament, specifically like the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, a bunch of these verses that talk about the mighty hand of God delivering his people. This teaches us that God's hand is an active hand and he acts on your behalf for your deliverance. That's what this teaches us in this passage. When, and that's why we ought to humble ourselves under God's hand. Because he desires to deliver us from our suffering, from our problems, from the enemy as we even see here in this passage. God doesn't want us to be destroyed by the enemy. So he creates this way for us to humble ourselves so that we can be under his protection. My daughter gets this. Like She totally understand, understands God's or, uh, dad's hand is a safe place. Dad's hand is going to protect me. When we're walking across the street, she grabs daddy's hand. She knows it's strong to protect her. She's so crazy. She, she can sense, like, she's getting afraid, so she she's, can't really sleep by herself. And so I was studying in the room with her last night, and she fell asleep. She was out. I get up to go get some water, and then as I'm leaving the room, she just says, Daddy, where are you? Where are you going? And I'm like, how did you know that? Like, you were, you were just asleep. She just sensed it. But guess what? She knew what to say, and she knew where to go. She was just like, I'm going to call out to Daddy, because Daddy's going to protect me. Daddy's going to save me. Daddy's going to take these fears away from me. She was casting on me her emotions. She was casting on me her fears, and I went right back and loved her and cared for her. And so this is, so if I can do that for my daughter, think about what God can do for you if you humble yourself under his hand. Now check it out. It says, at the proper time, because I said, if you do this, like at the proper time, you will be exalted. So what does at the proper time mean? Now Greek has two words for the word time. One is chronos and the other is kairos. If Peter chose to use the word chronos, then we could say like, okay, maybe a day from now or a week from now, or if you do this for one month, a month from now, then you're going to be exalted. You know, you sign this, fill out this little application, you do this for 30 days, you'll be exalted. It doesn't use that word for time. That's chronos. It actually uses the word kairos. And so that's why it kind of puts it more in this kind of open-ended English translation. At the proper time. Not going to tell you when. It might be today, it might be next week, it might be next month, it might be 10 years from now, it might be 30 years from now, it might be at the end. At the right time. If you continue to humble yourself, lower yourself under God's mighty hand in his timing, and his timing is always perfect, you never want to get ahead of that, he is going to lift you up. Probably he's recalling a psalm written in Hebrew but translated into Greek uses the same word to describe this. There's a tree firmly planted by this stream, by this river. And its roots grow deep and take in water. And its leaves, they don't fade. And it uses this word, at just the right time, in its season, it bears fruit. 
Have you ever seen like a fruit tree really try to pop out an apple? Like really try to grunt one out and just be like, oh, I'm really getting this apple. And then all of a sudden this apple pops out. That's not how it works. It simply spends time next to the water. It simply spends time soaking up the sun. And this is what we get to do. I mean, the, the picture is beautiful. We get to spend time in the water, which is the word. We get to spend time in the very presence of the sun. And we do that over and over and over again. I guarantee you, I don't know when, Kronos, but Kairos, at the proper time, he is going to lift you up. Just be faithful. And so in other words, Peter is saying, hang in there like he's going to exalt you. It's going to happen. It's going to be a sweet thing. And so he continues then. Um, so if, if that's true, that that should be our posture before God, then what's the litmus test? The litmus test we see in verse 7. I can know that I'm actually humbling myself under God's mighty hand when I cast all my cares on him. Does that make sense? When we hold our anxieties, when we hold our cares, when we hold our own concerns and isolate ourselves with those feelings, what psychologists tell us is there's a close association between that and depression. And I know that there, because I work with high schoolers at Westside Christian High, and I know there's a ton of kids who are experiencing depression. And I also know, sadly, pastorally, I'm like, you're choosing not to humble yourself under God's mighty hand. You're choosing to deal with this stuff on your own. You're choosing to hold this stuff in your own mind. And the Greeks had a figure of speech for that. They said, you're killing your mind when you do that. They said, it, it pains your thinking. There's no progress. You can't do anything. And so there are actually three idioms that come from this one expression that I found personally helpful as I was studying through this. And so I want to give you this word picture here. So over in Luke's gospel, when Jesus is riding in on Palm Sunday, they're going to be saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, and worshiping him. Before they did that, they took their cloaks and threw them on to the beast of burden, the colt. And that's the word used, epiriptao, or epiriptae. And what they were doing is they were epiriptoing their cloaks onto the beast of burden so that Jesus could climb on it and that beast of burden could carry Jesus. Do you guys see this? Understand what I'm saying here? It's an idiom. So at, that's, that's a very concrete usage of the word. You can, you can see the cloaks being cast onto this donkey. Very concrete you can use that same word in a very abstract way. Now you are epto-ripting your anxieties, your cares, your concerns onto God. Both of those are abstract. You can't put your cares and concerns and anxiety under a microscope and say, see, there it is. You can't say, oh, there's God. He's put in the microscope. There he is. So now we're kind of dealing in the realm of what is abstract. So what does that mean then? Um, so the idiom continues to be explained. It means to put the responsibility on God, to say, God, you are the one that's responsible for this. Again, try to go about your day solving all your problems and everything that comes your way. Again, we can use the figure of speech that the Greeks came up with. You're going to kill your mind. If you're going to try to solve all these problems yourself, your mind is going to get beat up. But on the other hand, if you take those same concerns, throw them onto God, cast them onto him and say, God, you're sovereign. You're in control. 
You're in charge. You see perfectly the situation that doesn't necessarily make sense to me. You can see how that would be a very beautiful encouragement for people who are being persecuted and he didn't really know why. We're just loving these people and they were being thrown into the lion's pit. We're just, we're just caring for them. We, we say that Jesus is Lord and they're being put to death. You can see how something like this in a concrete world and persecution that they were experiencing, they could take those thoughts and throw them to God and say, God, you're responsible. Whatever it is that happens in my life, I just put my life into your mighty hand. Okay? That's the second idea from this idiom. The third idea... Uh-oh, did I go backwards? What happened here? Um, oh, there it is. Okay, so put trust. Pardon me. You put your trust in someone. And that's kind of the one that our minds can easily hold on to. That's why I saved it to the end. I can, I can know that when I throw my concerns on God and I climb up on God and say, God, would you please carry me? I can trust because I know God and I know, I know what the scriptures say. I know how he's moved in history. And if it's true that he's moved in history in this way, he's going to move on my behalf too. And I can trust that. I can trust that. And the Jewish people, they had uh, a verse here in the Psalms that they would often go to um, to experience this, in their minds at least, as they're worshiping God. I'm going to cast my care on the Lord. He is going to sustain me. He will never let the righteous be shaken. That's a promise. Psalm 55:22, And that's most likely, again, where Peter's getting this along with the Proverbs quote in the previous section in chapter 5. He's saying we get to cast our cares. Now, my assumption is that you did not walk into church especially this room here, and you weren't freaking out about your pew breaking. That's just an assumption. Talk to me after if my assumption's off. My assumption is that you sat in here, you saw where you normally sit, and you sat down without even thinking twice. Is this thing going to break? Oh, no. Like, I got to, you know, whatever it might be. Do Do we experience God in that way? That's what it means to put trust in. I know that when I spend time with God, and the more time I spend with God, the more time I read these stories in Scripture, it shapes my thinking so that I'm not freaked out when I'm in God, under God's mighty hand. I'm not freaking out because I know it's secure. I'm not second-guessing that because I know who God is because I've spent time with Him. And there are many different ways to spend time with God. And we went over this as a youth group a couple of weeks ago. But there are so many different practices. It's like, how can I encounter God? How can I encounter this abstract thought that I have? Like, you can meditate on Scripture. God will speak to you through His Word. It's revelation. Fasting and silence and prayer and Scripture memorization, hiding God's Word in your heart. Bible study, serving and stewardship. All of these are ways in which you can encounter God and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he cares for you. Now, I have the number two up here. I was trying to convince my students in the past couple of weeks of this idea. And I said, you know what? Like, you can study math and science and English and social studies and all these subjects. And at the end of the day, when you solve the problem one plus one and you see the number two there, the number two, it's information, but it's never going to look back up at you and say, I love you. I care for you. I have a plan for you. That's not how that information works. 
But when you read the very living word, the scriptures, God-breathed information, and you open up your heart to God, you will hear him say, I care for you. You cast your cares, your anxieties, your burdens, your frustrations, whatever it might be, you cast that stuff on me. I'm responsible for you. I love you. I care for you. With the cares and concerns that we have, those are met by the cares and concerns that God has for us. It's a beautiful reminder that we're not in this alone. So I tried to convince my math teacher that, and he said, no, you're wrong. Calculus actually says the word love if you put it in the right order and if you do the right equations. So that's a, that's a completely separate conversation. But, you know, if you're doing calculus, this, that's for the engineers out there. Um, God loves you too, and you can find that out in calculus. Um, I wasn't able to convince my math teacher uh, at school that number two would never say he, it loves him, so he came up with a formula for me. Okay. Um, That brings us to uh, verse 8 here. So another, the third point, why that specific posture is important. Okay, so you humble yourself before God. You have the litmus test. Okay, I'm casting my cares. I know that I'm doing this because I'm casting my cares to you. Uh, why, Why is that important? Why does God actually want me to do that? Let's look at verse 8 and 9. It says here, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This is what the enemy does. We we took a trip down to Arizona this last uh, summer, and we we went to this petting zoo where you could pet the nice animals, like we spent time with the sloths, so you obviously don't pet the bears or the hyenas or the lions. Um, Those are behind the fences. But the tour guide, they took us through, and uh, she would take this bucket of chicken. And she would take this chicken, and she would say, now listen to how this lion, this bear, this hyena crunches down on the bone of this chicken. It was raw chicken. She just threw it over the fence, grabbed it. You could hear it. It was just chomping down on that chicken. It was crazy. And then these hyenas, they start laughing. Like, have you guys ever been close to a hyena? They're, they're like such weird creatures. But it started just laughing. Um, and then the tour guide to build a suspense, she's like, and if you were out in the Sahara and you were all alone and it was dark and, and you heard that laughter, that would be the last thing that you would hear you would be devoured. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh. Like, yeah, I look over at my kids, they're not freaking out. And I'm like, okay, this is fine. It's fun. Um, but this is the picture that we get here of the adversary, the devil, the enemy. The adversary simply means someone who is accusing you. And in the book of Revelation, it uses the same word. The enemy accuses you before the Father day and night. The enemy hates you, doesn't want anything good to happen to you. And so the enemy is described here, peripatao, is just he's walking around you circling you. And as he's circling you, he's driven to hunger, and that's actually why lions roar. They roar when they are hungry. When they're about to devour, they're going to attack you. That's what the lion is doing here. Do we go about our day realizing this enemy is there wanting to crush us and destroy us? Do I wake up in the morning and say, I need to put on the full armor of God. I need to place myself in the gospel because there's this enemy that wants to crush me, to devour me. Do I go about my day that way? I encourage you to do that. 
Wake up tomorrow, turn to the book of Ephesians, read through Ephesians chapter 6, get that armor of God on, get prayed up and go to work, and be ready for your day that way. Rather than waking up tomorrow morning and saying, oh, it's Monday, here's a bummer, life sucks, I gotta go to work, and I gotta go to work and be a bummer in front of other people. Like, I'm not saying you guys do that, but you know, there's other people that do that, and I hear this, and I'm like, oh my gosh, you have the breath of life today. Why are you not as passionate on Monday morning as you are on Sunday morning? Like, God loves you, He cares for you. Okay. The enemy is real. Peter's ending his epistle this way. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Watch out for him. There's a handful of verses that I just want to read that I think also help us in our description of the enemy. In theology, in systematic theology, it's called Satanology. It's a subtopic within angelology. It's a wonderful study because you get a big picture of who, G- of, of who Satan is. And it says, 2 Corinthians 11:3. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Think about this. Satan didn't show up with a pitchfork and a long pointy tail in a red suit with horns. He wasn't trying to freak Eve out. If I saw that, I'd probably run. You'd probably run too, unless it was Halloween. But Satan, he, he's cunning. What does he come and attack Eve with? A thought. He simply puts a thought in her mind. He says, did God, like, did he really say this? Like, you're not supposed to eat of the tree and the knowledge of good and evil? Like, did, did God really say that? He's questioning the very word of God. That's what Satan does. He puts these thoughts in our minds, and it makes us question God's word. And what did Eve do? Went along with it. Went with his thought experiment. Watch out for that. Don't let it rip off your devotion to Christ. Acts 5.3 says, uh, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled? And the word fill is the same word uh, when Paul uses it later in, in one of his letters. Don't be drunk with wine. That's debauchery. It's like filled, but be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled. That's all that word means. So let me put this in. It says, why has Satan controlled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Satan can control and influence our heart to do this and to go astray. Okay, elsewhere in the scripture, another passage here. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He, has a, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. We hear thoughts all the time. I don't think I'm alone in this unless I need to go see a psychologist or a counselor or something. But we hear thoughts all the time. So by way of just a quick thought experiment with you guys, where does a thought like this come from? You are a horrible person. Where does that come from? Satan or Jesus? Come on. Answer the question. It's okay. My son Levi says, why is it when pastors ask questions, no one answers the question? I'm like, well, that's respect. I, okay, another. But okay, you're a horrible person. Where does that come from? Satan or Jesus? Satan. What about like, your life is meaningless and pointless and why even try tomorrow morning when you wake up? Where does that come from? You guys are good at this. You're seriously, like, what about this? Like, why don't you, and this is more serious, so why don't you just take that steering wheel going 50 miles an hour and just turn that car off the road? 
Where does that, where does that kind of a thought come from? Satan or Jesus? Where do these thoughts come from? You're my creation. I love you. Where does that come from? You're amazing, so amazing that I am going to take on flesh and die for you. I'm not going to tell you to die. I'm going to die for you. Where does that come from? Jesus, you are so good at hearing the voice of God. I want to encourage you in that this morning. You know what God says to you. Jesus himself even says, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. They follow me. I'm their shepherd. I guide them. I lead them into green pastures and out. And I care for them. When the enemy's there, I wore that enemy off. That's what Jesus does for us. And we can hear his voice. And so he says in verse 9, well, actually I had a couple more of these, but find me later if you want to read some more verses about Satan, but we're done with that guy. So it says, resist him, verse 9, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Like, you know what? You guys aren't in this alone. We're not in this alone. I'm so thankful that we have the privilege to be at church. I'm so thankful that I have a privilege to be with high schoolers on a weekly basis, on a daily basis at Westside Christian. We're not in this alone. What the enemy wants you to think is that you are. That your, your thoughts, you're the only one that's thinking that stuff. But that's not true. The enemy's putting the same thoughts in people's minds all the time. And we get to come together and confess those thoughts and say, man, this is what I was thinking. This is crazy. And, but I'm going to choose to believe what God has to say about me. So we get to resist that, oppose that, and we get to stand firm in our faith knowing that other people are going through the same thing. And then in verse 10, it says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So here he is pulling a contrast. Um, The word in Greek is oligos. It's just a little while. Compared to the eternity that we're going to experience with God, Ionion. And so if I had a tape measure here, I'd put it from one end of the wall to the other. The tape measure would uh, represent Ionion, eternity. And a little tiny, little speck on that tape measure would represent Oligos, just a little. And so you can hear Peter's voice. He's saying, hang in there. You're going through something very challenging. You didn't deserve this. In fact, you did all the right stuff. You're following Jesus, yet you're still being persecuted. You're suffering for a little while, which actually is a prayer of Paul's in another letter. He says, I desire to know Christ. Yes, to enter into his suffering. I want to participate in the plan that God has had forever for our world here, that he might redeem us and deliver us with his mighty right hand and act on our behalf. And I want to be a part of that like forever. Yeah, I'm going to have to endure a little bit of suffering here, but the encouragement for us is hang in there. And I love this. When it it says the God of all grace, that's actually put at the beginning of the verse. It's in the emphatic position. So God wants us to focus on the grace that he has for us. And the word grace here in this context simply means his favor towards you, his goodwill. He loves you. Oh my goodness, that's amazing just to focus on the love that God has for us. Beautiful. 
He's called you. Like, that's the whole point of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You could summarize all of those in this one little phrase. Join the party. Join his kingdom. Join what Christ is doing here on this earth. As you're suffering, yes, join that party. And so he's called you to that. That's a personal invite. And if you haven't experienced that personally in your life, I encourage you to say some sort of prayer that you respond to God in that way. I hear your call. I hear your voice. And I want to follow you. I'd respond to that this morning. And he's called us to an eternal glory. Another synonym there for heaven. We're going to be with him forever. And four things in the future will happen. I'm already a minute over, so I'm just going to land the plane here real quick, and we can talk about this later. One-on-one, if you guys want. You can take me out to coffee. Um, that's, a, that's an invite to get a free cup for me, but um, that's okay. Um, what will happen is he himself, again, there's an emphatic word here. It could have simply said, you know, he will do this, but he himself, he himself is going to do this work in your life. He will do that. It's contingent upon verse 6 if we humble ourselves under his hand. And the four words that he uses here are synonyms. Uh, Let me just fast forward here for a second. He uses four words, and these are the benefits, pardon me. Um, Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. These These are things that will happen to you. They're all future tense in the original language here. They they will happen. Again, I wish I could say like, do this for a week and then next week when I see you, all these things will happen. You'll be good to go. It's kind of like that little flyer I got in the mail this last week. If you bring your car in, you're going to be carefree and not have a worry in the world. Like, no, I, I won't be carefree because I will care about the problems that you say about my car and it's not free and now I'm angry, right? Like, that's not how the gospel works. In just the right time, you will be exalted. At just the right time, you will be lifted up. And again, what does it mean to be exalted? This idea that God is actually going to lift us up, it means to honor us. Christ isn't afraid to call you brother or sister. He looks at you, holds you tight, and says, I love you. He honors you. He became one of you. He died for you. And then he also gives you position and fame because you are known by God. You can get a four-year degree at George Fox and you can be known like their little tagline is, but you don't need a four-year degree to get the grace of God and be known by the creator of this universe. Like he knows you. You're known by him. That's like the most important thing this side of eternity. So the word that I want to focus on here super quick is this idea of restore. He wants to set your mind right. And and so this word means that it's to function well. The word means to put in order and to restore, to restore to a right mind. My mind can be racked with all sorts of thoughts that aren't good and right. But as I cast those on my God and realize he's responsible, he loves me, he's going to get me through this, that's when he's going to restore my mind when I submit to him under his authority and rule. And so then he finishes, bookend idea. It says, verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever, amen. And that ties it into the beginning of this section. The word mighty, hand, and dominion are derivatives. So he's saying everything in between, like this is God's dominion. If you've entered that, you have no need to fear anything. He's in complete control. And it's to him 
be dominion, that power that belongs to him forever and ever. Again, kind of making us think about what's right around the corner. And I love thinking about this. Heaven is right around the corner forever and ever. And the word amen simply means let it be so. Let's pray.